We've just read from the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, and indeed the very beginning of the New Testament. So you might well be one of the millions of people who've wondered why on earth Matthew began his Gospel in such an awkward, such an unappealing, such a difficult way. Especially if, like Elaine, you happen to be the one who drew the short straw and had to read it out loud in public, wrestling with all of those names that have very little common parlance for us in our Western society. Well, one of Matthew's aims was to show his first readers, who were Jewish believers, that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has drawn near in fulfillment of prophecy. And that's why his gospel starts with a genealogy going back through King David all the way to Abram. These are the two men par excellence to whom Yahweh made specific and far-reaching promises. To Abraham the promise that through one of his descendants the entire world would be blessed. And to David, the promise that one of his lineage would reign forever. And that's why over and again in Matthew, we read, this took place in order to fulfill the word spoken by the prophets, whoever. Matthew presents us with more than a dozen I think it's probably 16, specific major prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And by the way, I'm not a mathematician, but according to those who are, the mathematical probability of the chances that any one person would perfectly fulfill just 12 such prophecies works out as less than one in the total number of people who have inhabited the earth throughout all of history. I find that utterly impressive. The fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecies given to the Jews over many centuries was what should have convinced Matthew's readers that Jesus was indeed their promised Messiah. And to us, it should at least show that the universe functions in line with the plans and purposes of God. That's why there is that pattern in the genealogy. Because God wills for certain things to happen. And they happen, despite statistical improbability. The detail of our lives isn't random or haphazard. In the end, it all happens in accordance with how it ties to the Son of God and our relationship with him. In Matthew chapter 1 and verses 20 through 23, we have the first of these fulfilled prophecies. He hinted at some in the genealogy, but this is the first time that he actually uses the formula. This took place to fulfill the words spoken by the prophet. 
in this case, the prophet Isaiah. And God spoke through him, telling Ahaz, king of Judah, around 720 BC, that he would give him a sign. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So why Ahaz? Why that time? What was the situation that he was facing? Well, Israel, in other words, the ten northern tribes that had defected in the days of David's grandson Rehoboam, and this is in 1 Kings chapter 11, they'd attacked their cousins, Judah. And in one day alone, they had killed 120,000 of them and taken a further 200,000 captive in order to enslave them. On top of that, Syria had attacked and defeated one of Judah's fortified cities and taken still more captives away as slaves to Damascus. So, we really can't be surprised that Ahaz wondered if Judah was finished. And along with Judah, the royal line of David. In other words, had God's promises failed? Was the royal house of David now done for? And the Lord through Isaiah was saying, No, my promise to David is still in effect. I have not finished with Judah. It's interesting that Ahaz refused to accept this prophetic word. So Isaiah told him, Ask for a sign from the Lord to verify it. And I think you get to understand a little bit about more a little bit more about Ahaz when he refused to ask for a sign, making some pious remark about not tempting God. Isaiah and I believe we can hear the annoyance in his voice by now. Isaiah told him God would give a sign anyway. And just who precisely the sign was for, we'll come back to in a minute. The virgin will give birth to a son. And this is the important part here. Before he can tell right from wrong, the kingdoms of the two enemy kings threatening Judah will be no more. And their lands will be left deserted. And this child would be referred to as Emmanuel. It sounded utterly impossible. How could desperately weakened Judah possibly survive the attentions of her powerful enemies? Yet they did, through the Lord's intention and the Lord's intervention. But actually the Lord was speaking about something far greater than the immediate short-term survival of Judah. He was speaking about the fact that he does keep his promises. He was addressing his people's doubts about his ability to keep his word. And demonstrated that he does in ways that are above and beyond anything we can imagine. Ahaz was worried about his waning power and the prospect of losing his kingdom and probably his life. 
He was anxious about human politics. Yet, in the purposes of God, the kings of Israel and Syria did go into exile. And as prophesied, within the time span of a child being born when the prophecy was given, not having grown even sufficiently to tell right from wrong. But that was almost an incidental outworking of this prophecy. The Lord was also promising to address, in a parallel way, man's desperate need for his intervention. And calling his people to believe that all of his promises will ultimately be fulfilled. Long, long before Isaiah, shrouded in the mists of antiquity, the Lord promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the evil one's head. Cursing the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Right after the fall, the Lord promised a saviour. Though actually the wording is really quite interesting. Because the Lord spoke only of the offspring of the woman. And not the man and the woman together. As you would naturally expect. And in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the Lord begins to unpack that Genesis promise, saying, A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. I traced my family history a while ago, using documents and all the things I could find online. However, the trend these days is to do something far more expensive than that and to use DNA burst based research, which can go way, way, way back. Because the male Y chromosome passes largely intact from father to son. It's proved such unlikely things as King Richard III being buried in a car park in Leicester. I worked in Leicester in the 1960s and would have to say, not a great choice for a royal burial. And I wonder how much the outstanding parking bill is. More seriously, it's been suggested that this gives a solid scientific base to the sinlessness of Jesus. As the Y chromosome came, not from a man, but from the Holy Spirit. Be that as it may, in our day, in our culture, the Christmas story has been trivialized. And the New Testament's account of the nativity consigned to the realm of fantasy or myth. In the last few days I've noticed that there's even now a kid's TV movie which is claiming to offer an alternative version. They say the real version of the origin of Christmas. Because there was a boy called Christmas. 
But you see, there's a backstory to why this is the case. Because you see, as soon as we accept as fact that God miraculously became one of us through the virgin birth in fulfillment of prophecies, specifically to deal with the effect of mankind's sin and to deal with the evil one, all at an incalculable cost to himself. Once we accept that as fact, it pushes us into having to make a decision. We cannot sit on the fence about God any longer. We must either accept him and his claims upon our lives, or else reject him and repudiate his claims. And there are many who find answerability to God an intolerable infringement of their liberty. And so they strive to find convincing reasons to declare the incarnation to be a myth, which has its roots in what they describe as the medieval superstition of the virgin birth. That means for them, they can now safely reject its implications about sin and salvation and the way in which they live their lives. As a poster campaign promoted by Richard Dawkins said a few years ago, God probably doesn't exist. So relax and enjoy your life. Sadly, humanists such as Dawkins aren't alone because even in the church there are those who want a more Shall I say a more convenient God who puts no demands on us? So they also look for ways of moving the nativity into the arena of make-believe. One approach is to say the word for virgin doesn't mean virgin, but young lady. I want to single this one out particularly as it's a popular claim of liberal Christian skeptics, of TV pundits, and of Sunday supplements. They take as their starting point Proverbs chapter 30, verses 18 and 19, where someone called Agor, I have no idea who he was, but apparently he reckoned he was stupid, but the Lord had given him wisdom. He tells of things that are too wonderful for him to understand. And these critics say that the Hebrew word there does not have to mean virgin. And so they translate this particular phrase. That one of the things that he doesn't understand is the way of a man with a maid. Or the way of a man with a young woman. But this interpretation or translation is highly debatable, especially as the context in which this man is saying that these are things that are just wondrously mysterious and beyond him. The thing here is he's looking at a smitten young man courting or wooing his intended. And in the increasingly monogamous Hebrew society of the world of the book of Proverbs, that would always, inevitably, mean virgin. 
and not simply a young woman. But actually the primary reason is a linguistic one. Because this Hebrew word Alma comes from a root which actually means to be hidden or to be covered. And so it is deliberately referring to a young woman whose nakedness has not been uncovered by a man. Therefore, a virgin. I ask for the same Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be written to open them to us this morning. And he who inspired Isaiah could not have chosen a better word to describe Mary. When Gabriel told her she would be with child, her response was that of a young woman whose nakedness had not been uncovered by a man. For Luke chapter 1, verse 34, she herself there asked Gabriel, How can this be, since I have not known a man? In the Isaiah prophecy, Halma is soundly translated, the virgin. God had chosen Mary to be the mother of Jesus, the virgin who would conceive, the woman whose offspring would crush the head of the evil one. However, we do need to squarely face an issue that, if missed, would seem to support the opponents of the virgin birth. It's simply this. Was this prophecy of Isaiah's addressed to Ahaz alone? Because, you see, if it was, then it had to be fulfilled during his lifetime. A virgin having a son. And we have, it's not to say it didn't happen, but we have no evidence for that happening at all. Or was there something else going on here? Now, verses 10 and 11 clearly speak about a sign to Ahaz. But is Ahaz the recipient of the words in verse 14? When we read the text carefully... It's clear that in the preceding verse to verse 14, which if my maths is right is verse 13, Isaiah turns his attention from King Ahaz as a descendant of David, the founder of Judah's royal house, and speaks to David's entire dynasty throughout time in general. Hear then, O house of David. And actually, this is where we hear the annoyance in Isaiah's voice, echoing that of the Lord. House of David, is it too little that you weary men, that now you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this immensely significant change in the recipient of this prophecy From this point on, and therefore including the word in Isaiah 7.14, means that this word was not directed simply at Ahaz alone, and therefore not necessarily having to be completely and literally fulfilled during his lifetime. But rather, 
It was spoken to the whole historic royal house and line of David. Meaning the prophetic intention was for its implications regarding the time scale of Judah's deliverance from their enemies to be fulfilled in Ahaz's time. But for the greater meaning to be fulfilled at a time that the Lord had yet to reveal some future time. There's another subtlety of the text in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now I've highlighted it in red because Northern Ireland and my hometown Liverpool have a word in common. Use. It's not in the dictionary. Well, it might be in some, but they're unofficial. We need to use that word here. The Lord will give use a sign. It's plural. It was not addressed just to Ahaz, but rather to all of them, to the whole house of David, King David's descendants, his royal line. Indeed, it's a sign addressed to them in a far greater sense than just the immediate crisis facing Ahaz. Now I say far greater than the immediate crisis. I'm not trying to minimize that crisis because for those embroiled in it, it seems as though the Lord had abandoned them. That the superpower of the day, Assyria, would shortly invade and destroy them and bring to an end their kingdom and its royal house. But the essential thrust of Isaiah's word was that despite these fears... The Lord would preserve the house of David. And the idea of a virgin conceiving was to make Ahaz see that the Lord was going to do something that appeared utterly impossible. And that he would do it within a few short years. It was intended to convince this doubting king that the Lord does indeed keep his word. And if we fast forward approximately 700 years from Isaiah's day, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord's anointed, was born of David's line in fulfillment of the prophecy to the house of David in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. For the Jews of Jesus' day, of Matthew's day, who had eyes to see, It should have convinced them that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Indeed, it should also convince us today. Because the only other alternative is that Mary was unfaithful to Joseph. But everything we read about her says otherwise. I sometimes wonder... If Mary had a secondary motive in approaching her son with the problem of the empty wine jars at that wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. Seems a bit odd that Jesus responded to his mother in two apparently different ways. Verbally, he said, and maybe abruptly, that his time had not yet come. But in fact, 
He actually went on and transformed enough water to drown half the population of the village in the best wine they'd ever tasted. Was Mary, in this conversation with her son, asking Jesus to do something that revealed his divine origins? Because that would, in turn, vindicate her story of the miraculous conception and clear her highly besmirched reputation once and for all. If that conjecture is right, then Jesus' words are saying, I will do that completely in the Father's time and in the Father's way. Referring to, but clearly not spelling it out at this stage, that his resurrection from the dead would show that he truly is who he said he was and that her account of his conception and birth, in fact, was true. But you see, the water into wine miracle itself was for the sake of his disciples. Early in his ministry, to build their mustard seed faith and not to proclaim to all and sundry who he was. In other Gospels, there's something of the messianic secret. I think there's just a hint of it here in John. Be that as it may, as it may. Matthew goes out of his way to make sure we do not doubt this double prophecy of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. By pointing us to so many other fulfilled prophecies in this one man that we become more and more aware of the fact that something truly remarkable is happening here. In fact, it's even more remarkable than that utterly unexpected and unbelievable deliverance of Judah in Ahaz's day. That prophecy seemed impossible to Ahaz, but it was fulfilled. And frankly, it's no exaggeration to say that the whole basis of Christianity is that this prophecy has also been fulfilled in Jesus in a far, far bigger sense, achieving the apparently impossible, the miracle of man's gracious redemption. The clue is in the second part of that verse. She shall call his name Emmanuel. Because you see, Emmanuel is more than a name. It's a title. It's a description. God with us. Listen to the Nicene Creed. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. He came down from heaven and by the power of the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Which is to say that he is Emmanuel. In the fourth century, Athanasius, and 
I've always liked Athanasius since I had to write a dissertation on him back in college days. But he wrote these words. He became what we are, that we might that he might make us what he is. Emmanuel, our sinless substitute, God's son, his anointed one who suffered death upon the cross for our redemption and made there by this one offering of himself a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. This is our only hope of salvation. And it's a message the world desperately needs to hear and embrace. Yet in another way, God has always been Emmanuel throughout history. Consistently, he promises believers as we face times both good and bad, I'll be with you. He may not take us out of every difficult situation, but he does promise to always be with us, never deserting us, in and through every situation. Even so, From the moment that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Emmanuel was with us in a new way. The way we find easiest to relate to, even if we struggle to get our heads around what Paul spells out in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 19. That he was a man, and yet in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uniquely, Jesus could say, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He became God incarnate for our salvation. And also to show us what God is like in a visible way. And he continues to be Emmanuel by his spirit. Present in the life of all believers from the first Christian Pentecost to the present day. He is Emmanuel in our lives, past, present and future. He was Emmanuel to each one of us. Before we even knew him. Because not one of us comes to Christ without him drawing us to himself. Jesus' words in John chapter 12 and verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. He draws us. He has to draw us because we would never have come to him on our own. Be encouraged. He is Emmanuel today with unbelieving friends and family members. It may seem that they'll never come to him. 
But the Bible tells us that Jesus' death on the cross is even yet drawing them. They are not hopeless cases. He's Emmanuel in their lives today, even though they don't yet necessarily realize it and may even be reacting against it. So pray. Pray that they open up to him. The bottom line is, they're no different from you or me before we came to Christ. We might flatter ourselves thinking that there was something good or responsive in us that gave us an inclination to find the truth and become believers. In reality, Emmanuel, God with us, was drawing us to himself and eventually we responded. He is still Emmanuel. And this designation uses both a word expressing closeness and also the Hebrew title for God, El, which specifically focuses on God the Almighty, the all-powerful one for whom nothing is impossible. God with us in the midst of our loneliness, our concerns, our trials, our sicknesses and our disappointments. He is present with us and will see us through. God with us, saving us from the consequences of our sins. Of all the world's faiths, only Christianity knows of a God who has so embraced our pain with us and become sin for us so that we might become righteous. That he actually became one of us. Now we've moved quite a little way from Matthew chapter 1. But in a sense we've gone full circle. So let's go back to where we started. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet... Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel had commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Yeshua. Jesus. God had chosen the right man. He just needed clarity that it was God's will. I think that's often the case with us. I think it is for me, certainly. We're ready to serve. It's just that some of the things that God asks can be kind of off the page, unexpected, not at all where we are anticipating going. So when in doubt, may I suggest that rather than asking for peace, which is the temptation, we ask for clarity. The Lord is willing to make things clear to us, as so many of his servants have discovered down the centuries. And once Joseph had it clear from the Lord, he obeyed without hesitation. He woke from his dream and took Mary home as his wife. I seriously doubt 
that Joseph had a nice, comfy feeling of peace about the future. As the future would have appeared, as it turned out to be, anything but fitting into his categories of a normal life. But he knew, as we can, that God was with him. That makes all the difference. It makes this world a different place. We live in a world in which God has come to show us his love. But in the hustle and bustle of this season, let me ask us all, what is our relationship with Emmanuel? Do we keep him at a distance? Or does he walk and talk with us? Oh, what an amazing God who would become one of us and share in our deepest depths in order to draw us from darkness to light. And may I simply say, if you have never ever done so, may I urge you to invite him to be Emmanuel, God, with you today and every day. May we pray together. Father, we stand utterly amazed. You had this all planned out, even before it appeared that a plan was necessary. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you made way back after the fall, immediately after the fall, and promising a saviour. Thank you, Lord, that you showed to Isaiah just a little glimpse of what that was going to mean. And Lord, we bless you that in the fullness of time, your son was made man. Lord, we don't know how to get our heads around that. We can't see how the almighty God can be compassed in the span of mankind. But you did it. And you did it for us. Your promise is that you will be with us. That you will save us to the uttermost. Once we turn to you. In repentance. For all that we have done. In denying you. In our words and our deeds and our attitudes. And trust you. Not only to be with us now but through judgment and into eternity that we may enjoy you forever and that we might know your fellowship and your hand holding us forever Lord we give you praise and glory And we ask that you would 
Help each one of us to make this totally real in our lives. Now, by your Holy Spirit. Because we ask it for the name that is above every name. Jesus, our Lord. Amen.